any institution today that it has racial disparities in its demographics is per se racist. And I can tell you, as long as racism is the only allowable explanation for the fact that Google is not 13% black engineers or the physics department at Harvard University is not 13% black, it is all coming down. It is a form of mass neuroses that is extraordinarily consequential because it is taking down every single institution. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Heather McDonald. Heather, welcome to the show. Brendan, it is so great to be with you again. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I should say welcome back to the show. We've had you on before. It's great to have you back on because you've got this brilliant new book out. Uh, it's a it's a shocking book. It's a shocking read, and it's also a brilliant read, and I highly recommend it to listeners. It's called When Race Trumps Merit, and the subheading, which will give people a real flavor of what this is about, is How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. So what you've written, Heather, is basically a book about the new racial hysteria that has swept the United States over the past couple of years, since 2020, really, and the way that it's impacting on so many facets of American life and Western life more broadly in terms of medicine, science, culture, art, law and order. And you give so many striking examples of how that's happening. You have this brilliant phrase, which I really want to come back to a couple of times, which is that we're witnessing an act of civilizational self-cancellation. I think that really gets to the heart of what, what I want to talk to you about. But to kick things off, let's go back to the beginning, I suppose, where you open the book. You open the book by talking about the new cultural revolution, which you see as really exploding after the killing of George Floyd in 2020 and then the riots that followed that. So if we go back to that moment, how, how quickly did it become clear to you that in the meltdown after the uh, police killing of George Floyd, that we were witnessing more than just an outburst of anger, but something that would threaten America itself? Well, it was so much more than an outburst of anger, Brendan, because uh, this was a revolution that was being carried forth at the upper reaches of elite establishments, not through looting or arson, but through the language of anti-racism, and there was hardly a single institution in the United States that did not put out a statement of self-flagellation, uh, accusing itself and implicitly, you know, its own members of white supremacy. This could be, of course, every university in the country did so. They've been saying that for decades. So that was not particularly surprising, although... Uh, they reached new levels of shrillness and uh, melodrama. But you had banks, you know, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, corporations, uh, Silicon Valley companies, Google, orchestras, opera companies, museums, foundations, law firms, restaurants, all coming out with this flood of both self-incrimination and a attack on the entirety of American civilization as all complicitous in the death of George Floyd. And institutions overnight went from being 
dedicated, say, to their core mission. So the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City was founded to make available to as many people as possible the treasures initially of Western civilization, and then it very quickly became an, an, a world encyclopedic museum to preserve and, and pass on works of utter sublimity in their creation, skill levels, and insight into human feeling and uh, composition. Overnight, they declared their, themselves anti-racist institutions. Their mission became that of anti-racism, not that of, in the case of the Metropolitan Museum or the Art Institute of Chicago, preserving and passing on beauty. Um, so this really was a acceleration of trends that had been going on in the academy and by activists and an adoption into the very lifeblood of elite American opinion makers and institutions. Yeah, and um, th that's a very good outline to, to jump in with. And it's remarkable that it, it even had an impact here in the UK. I mean, one of the most striking things about the Black Lives Matter ideology is the way it moved like a juggernaut through the Western world. And even here in Britain, after the killing of George Floyd, we had, as you say, an acceleration of trends. And we saw museums hiding away certain artifacts or saying they needed to have a reckoning with their whiteness. And we saw an acceleration of the decolonization idea, the idea that academies and curriculums need to be uh, have the whiteness removed from them. So if we had that here in Britain, I can only imagine how intensive all of that was in America itself. There's a great line in the book, and I want to ask you about this following on from what you've just said. There's a really good line where you're talking about the cultural revolution that took place in the US following the killing of George Floyd. And you say that where the original cultural revolution in China was an uprising of the masses against the elites... What we are witnessing in the U.S. now is really an uprising of the elites against the masses or of the elites against ordinary people and against their own society. So you've just mentioned there the banks that took the need to the, the Black Lives Matter movement, the museums that try to um, rid themselves of the sin of whiteness. And you've written extensively on the cultural crusade against classical music for being too white, which I want to ask you about as well. So do you see this very much as an elite crusade? Because, of course, other people's understanding of the response to the George Floyd killing was that it was a grassroots movement. This was ordinary people rising up in fury against racist America. But actually, the story was a little bit different, wasn't it? Well, I think it, it can be both. Uh, you had two kinds of riots going on. You had the traditional opportunistic looting riots uh, which Edward Banfield wrote about in The Unheavenly City when he was very cynical towards the romanticization of the 1960s riots in the United States as, again, some significant cry against ongoing uh, segregation and, and lack of racial equality. And he said, oh, yeah, that, right, like stealing uh, alcohol, stealing you know, bottles of gin from a liquor store is hardly a civil rights protest. This is simply uh, the opportunity is there. The law enforcement has been cowed. Let's just get, get us some stuff. So 
Part of the George Floyd riots was that. Uh, you also then had real provocateurs there that, that had planned the Black Bloc, some of these white Antifa anarchists uh, that was not necessarily grassroots. This was, these are groups that are founded on explicit hatred of the free market, of any kind of hierarchical authority that they are not on top of. Uh, you know, you better believe that when it comes to their own authority, they're ruthlessly uh, enforcing. So there was that, but definitely the elites have long had a form of virtue signaling, which is to say, and this is particularly true in universities, that we are going to build this utopian community of diverse peoples. And so that we as a college president, whether we're Yale President Peter Salovey or Princeton's Christopher Eisgruber, um, we're going to look out upon our diverse uh, meadow here of fresh faces and feel so superior to the rest of the country that we believe is filled with MAGA hat wearing rubes from you know, the, the, the Appalachian Hills that do not have our enlightened views of race. So it was both. Uh, it was the elites seizing on a moment to reassert their superiority to the rest of America and to get in goods with the media that they knew would be themselves another source of elite power. Uh, promoting the idea that the George Floyd death was emblematic of the entirety of policing, of the entirety of the criminal justice system, turning what, let's be honest here, a, a petty criminal who had just committed a crime into the only type of civil rights martyr that we seem to have these days, which is tragic, which are criminals who have been who end up getting killed by the police, but they are criminals to begin with in many, many cases, something that would have been appalling to the actual heroes and martyrs of the civil rights movements in the 50s and 60s here. Um, so they knew that the press was going to be on them. And so they wanted to sort of get ahead of the media wave and say, oh, oh, but we understand uh, America is racist, we're racist. And and the usual irony here, again, when, when college presidents get up and beat their chest and say, oh, woe is me, Yale is so racist, which is absurd. It is absolutely absurd. Let's just get this down right now. There is not a single university, whether in the UK or the United States, that is discriminating against Blacks. The opposite is the case. If you are a Black student or a Black academic, you have an enormous advantage over your peers. There is not a single faculty search at a UK institution or an American one that is not one long desperate effort to find remotely qualified uh, my underrepresented minorities or females to hire. But when these presidents get up there and say, oh, Yale is racist, they're basically saying their own faculty is racist. <laughs> they never name names, but that's what they're saying. Um, so it's all a fantasy. It's a fiction. It is a form of mass neuroses that is extraordinarily consequential. 
uh, because it is taking down every single institution. Any institution today that has racial disparities in its demographics uh, is per se racist. The left, if that's the only allowable explanation for racial disparities, which is discrimination, the left wins. It is all coming down. And what I'm trying to do is provide alternative explanation for those racial disparities, because I can tell you, as long as racism is the only allowable explanation for the fact that Google is not 13% black engineers uh, or the physics department at Cambridge University or Harvard University is not 13% black physicists, it is all coming down. So that's the next thing I, I wanted to ask you about. You write in the book about the um, the bias fallacy, the disparity fallacy. And I did want to ask you about that. So you kick off the book by saying that 2020 was a pivotal year post George Floyd, because what you had was every institution in America coming out and saying, endorsing the view that America is defined by systemic racism. And, and they all did that. And, and many of them are still doing it. And it's very clearly a way through which they can signal their virtue, their, their enlightened understanding of history and so on. And one thing you make very clear in the book, at the beginning of the book, is that it's unquestionable that America's treatment of black people was, as you say, heartbreakingly cruel and gratuitously sadistic for centuries, not only in relation to slavery, but also right up to some of the civil rights problems of the uh, 1900s. Um, but you argue really convincingly, in my view, that the idea that everything in America today can be explained by either the historical hangover from the racist past or by systemic racism being institutionalized in new forms just doesn't stack up. You, you mentioned the figure there, 13 percent, and that's because um, black people make up 13 percent of, of the population of the United States. And you point out that according to the new racial thinkers, if any academic department or any profession has fewer than 13% black people, then it is instantly seen as a problem of racism. And that's the fallacy that lots of people are working from. So that's not true, is it? Could you just take us through a little bit uh, what you mean by the bias fallacy and why the idea of a racist disparity doesn't stack up when you look at the evidence? Yeah, that's very well put, Brendan. And yes, I am deeply, deeply troubled by how to reconcile America's historical treatment of blacks with the, at least the conservative narrative about America as founded on freedom and equality. And, and I'm, I'm struggling on a, practically a daily basis of how to reconcile that narrative with the fact that there was just such heartbreaking cruelty that I almost think that the post-Civil War, post-slavery, uh, treatment of blacks where there was just unnecessary nastiness on on the part of so many whites that that was even worse almost than than slavery itself but as impossible as it would have been to predict even i don't know 70 years ago uh that this country has really done a 180 degree turn uh I, I do believe that with very, very few exceptions, and it's it's conventional at this point for somebody in my position to have a little safe harbor statement about, well, of course there's racism, but I'm not really going to concede that because I do not think that 
there is sufficient racism to justify it being brought up. In fact, as I said earlier, it's not just universities that are giving massive preferences to blacks. You know, the reality today is black privilege. It is not white privilege, contrary to Robin D'Angelo and her many acolytes. But that's true in, in the private sector as well. It's certainly true in government. To be black is to be preferred. To be a white male, a heterosexual white male, is to be at the bottom of the totem pole. Good luck getting hired or even considered. Um, but we do look around and we see ongoing racial disparities. It is true that in meritocratic institutions, you don't have uh, the, the national population of 13% blacks. They're not, they're not at the highest reaches of law firms, even though law firms are themselves using massive racial preferences to admit uh, law associates and are, are trying to push them into partner ranks. You know, you, you see that in, in corporations everywhere. And, and then on the other side, so we have an underrepresentation of blacks in meritocratic institutions. And then on the other side, you, ha you have an overrepresentation of blacks in prison. Blacks are 13% of the nation's population. They're about a third of the nation's prison population. And both that under and overrepresentation is inevitably viewed as the leading proof of racism. It is very hard today. I can't think of a single instance where the New York Times or the Washington Post has come up with an example of an institution that is intentionally discriminating against Blacks. And that was what the paradigm civil rights violations were in the 1960s. The civil rights statutes said to employers, you may not, uh, not hire a qualified Black because he's Black. It, it assumed that what it was going after was intentional discrimination on the part of an employer. I've not seen any employer fingered for that kind of discrimination in living memory. What we have instead as a now a surrogate for intentional discrimination is outcomes. If an institution is not proportionately Black, then it is presumed to be biased. We don't know where. It's like phlogiston, this idea of systemic racism. We don't know where it is, but we know that it exists. It's just somehow there, and it's blocking uh, Black progress. And this view that the only thing that can possibly account for these disparities is this mysterious systemic racism completely overlooks the massive academic skills gaps on the one hand, which is what is preventing proportional representation in meritocratic institutions. And on the other, it overlooks the massive disparities in crime, criminal offending that explain the disparities in the prison population. And so what you have in the United States, uh, 12th graders, our 12th grade is the last year of secondary education before you go into college. So 12th graders are like seven, 16, 17 years old. And 
according to our national exams of academic skills, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, 66% of Black 12th graders do not possess even partial mastery of 12th grade math skills. Those skills, 12th grade math skills, are defined very minimally to be able to follow arithmetical calculations, to do those calculations, or to recognize a linear function on a graph, say. So 66% of Black 12th graders don't even have partial mastery of those 12th grade math skills. Only 7% of Black 12th graders are competent in 12th grade math skills, and the number who are advanced is too small to show up statistically. The picture is not much better in reading. Those gaps do not close. They Remedial education in college does not make up. And so when you have so small a number of Black students with the type of analytical skills that are required for most jobs in white collar sector, it is preposterous to go automatically reflexively to the bias explanation when the real issue is that there are not a sufficient number of competitively qualified blacks in the hiring pipeline to make it remotely possible to achieve 13% Black representation in meritocratic institutions without radically lowering standards. You know, we all talk about diversity ad nauseum here. Diversity is simply a code word for racial preferences. You can have diversity or you can have meritocracy. You cannot have both. And as far as overrepresentation in the criminal justice system, Blacks commit crime at magnitudes higher rates. Right now, uh, Black juveniles are killed in gun homicide at about 100 times the rate of white juveniles. Who's killing them? Not the police, not whites, but other Blacks. Black juveniles commit gun homicide at about 100 times higher than white juveniles in the post-Floyd uh, public safety breakdown. If you look just at ages 10 to 24, the rate at which blacks die of gun homicide is 25 times uh, higher than whites. Again, because it's blacks that are committing gun homicide 25 times the rate of whites. That explains our overrepresentation of blacks in prison, not allegedly racist police or racist judges. Those explanations are themselves fantastical, false, and dangerous. Have you signed up to Spiked's daily newsletter yet? It's called Today on Spiked. Every day you'll get a roundup of all our content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. That's really useful information. And your book obviously digs down into all of this stuff in great detail. But one thing that would be put to you by some of the people on on the so-called left, some of the contemporary progressives, I, I often refer to them as the new racialists because they view everything through a very racialized lens. What they might say to you is, okay, so black kids, when they get to 12th grade, um, they don't have the right skills in mathematics or science in order to be able to go into certain 
university spheres and academic subjects. And they might argue that the fact that they lack those skills is a symptom of racial disparity or, or racism because they don't, for, for whatever reason, they don't have the right educational conditions or the right living conditions in order to focus on subjects like that in the way that other communities do. And one reason I'm putting that to you is because we have very similar discussions here in the UK. In fact, the government commissioned a report on racial and ethnic disparities a couple of years ago, led by Tony Sewell. And it proved to be incredibly controversial, although I found it very convincing, because it argued that there are undoubtedly ethnic disparities in the UK, but they can't be explained by structural racism. So it looked at differences in the social capital that communities might have, how communities might value education and um, aspiration. So one example is that uh, black kids in Britain of African heritage tend to do very well educationally where black kids of Caribbean heritage don't do so well. And then the ones who do least good are white working class boys who come from backgrounds that in some cases don't value education in the way that some immigrant communities do. So there are clear disparities there that can't just be written off as a product of structural racism. But how would you explain in the example you've given of um, black kids in the US just not having good enough skills, essentially, let's be honest about it, even when they're in the 12th grade, when people would say, well, that's where the racism is in their childhoods, in their educational experience, in their family life, maybe in the housing in which they live, which doesn't lend itself to academic uh, concentration. How do you respond to that kind of question? Well, at some point, uh, I think we need to stop making excuses and assume some personal agency. I've posed in the past, a thought experiment, which is that if Blacks in the United States acted like Asians in all things related to both academic and life success for, say, 15 or 20 years, and we still saw these racial disparities, then I would be willing to entertain the phlogiston explanation of systemic racism. But at present, when you can observe such large differences in family culture, in behavior related to academic success, it is way premature to reach for this highly uh, unempirical sort of fantasy explanation that it's only systemic racism. We have in the United States, and, and you know, it sounds like you've got it there in, in the UK to a certain extent, with, with black students here, there's this stigma against acting white. Acting white is understood to be doing homework, and it, you know, it would really be acting Asian at this point, because Asians in the US are whooping everybody's ass. Uh, but, but acting white is to do one's homework, to study for exams, to show up to school uh, religiously, you know, not being truant. Blacks are truant at about four times the rate of whites. Parents that monitor their, their students' academic efforts with fanatical attention that make it clear that they expect their children to pay attention in class and to do homework, uh, deferring gratification not going out at night before a test, uh, but studying. Now, you know, I know that there's many people that violate that rule, but still, if, if you want to 
get ahead in life, you have to learn early on the virtues of self-control, future orientation, and, and, and deferred gratification. As I say, if Black students and Black parents acted like Asian students and Asian parents for 15, 20 years, and we still saw the disparities, then I'd say racism. But right now, there are huge cultural differences in the home and that are within the capacity of those individuals to change. It has become completely taboo in mainstream liberal discourse to talk about behavior as having any bearing on outcomes. You, you simply may not look at behavioral differences. The only allowable explanations in addition to racism are sort of large systemic structures uh, that, that we see certain valued victim groups as helpless pawns that can do nothing to better themselves. It depends on government action to pull them up or or the use of preferences in the private sector. Uh, but that, I think, is paternalistic, and it, it absolutely undermines uh, the types of moral attitudes towards life that are, in fact, essential for success. And so, you know, the, the left is going to come back and say, well, yeah, but, uh, you know, those cultures are themselves the product of systemic racism. So it's an it's an endless regress. But at some point, it seems to me, you have to stop that regress and say it's it's also up to the alleged victim groups. You there are things you can change. You can take your textbook home. I've been to inner city classrooms and and they're they're horrific. The students have their back to their teacher. They've got their earphones in. They're talking. Uh, the teachers that leave have sort of a code of silence about what they're experiencing. We had another, you know, another application of this disparate impact rule was with regard to student discipline. The presidential administration of Barack Obama really doubled down on the disparate impact idea in school discipline and said that if schools are disciplining black students at higher rates of, than whites, it must be teacher racism your, your behavioral standards have a disparate impact. Therefore, you're going to throw out behavioral standards and you can't suspend or expel disruptive students because they are disproportionately black. And so now they have to be kept in the classroom. I've seen these classrooms. They're really bad. And I am not going to accept that the students in those classrooms have no self-control or we couldn't we shouldn't expect them to have self-control. This is not going to get turned around until the pathological inner city culture of stigma against acting white, of celebrating criminality, gang involvement, drug involvement, the misogyny. If that culture doesn't get turned around, there is nothing that the outside world can do to change these disparities. That brings me on to something else. The, the next issue I wanted to talk to you about, because as you outline really well in the book, and I think this is such an important point, that pathological culture that you've described that exists in certain communities, especially in inner cities, um, you say there's there's nothing that, that the outside world can do that, but it can make it worse. And I think one of the contributory factors to some of the problems you're talking about, which is that 
black kids haven't reached a certain academic level at a certain stage. They're not really getting into universities in a in an equal fashion. They are now through new uh, systems of equity, which are problematic. Um, because what is being said now by some in the new racialist elites is that we have to lower standards in order to accommodate um, certain communities that don't reach those standards. And you describe in the book the way in which things like excellence, timekeeping, um, sitting exams, being able to concentrate in exams, all of these things are increasingly seen as virtues of whiteness, as things that are defined by white people and better enjoyed by white people. Now, firstly, that strikes me as a very racist idea, as if black communities are not capable of all of those things. And that does sound to me like a pretty racist um, proposition. But it also will have the impact, won't it, over the long term of worsening the problems that you're describing, especially in schools in inner cities and schools in deprived areas. If we have this culture that says, well, we can't possibly expect people from certain backgrounds to achieve excellence or to learn how to spell or to be corrected on their spelling or to be judged on their SATs. You've got a, a great part in the book about how uh, judgment on students according to their SAT results uh, is now being uh, played down because it's seen as racially unfair to do that. Isn't that just an attempt to institutionalize racial ignorance in a sense, where the elites are basically saying there are certain parts of our community who will never achieve our standards, so we have to make allowances for them, as if they were children almost. Yeah, absolutely. You're stripping those groups of any kind of agency and efficacy. I, I doubt whether there's any kind of plan behind that. I think that the elites are just so terrified that the skills gaps are not closing. They're absolutely freaked out about it. Uh, because this has been the focus of a huge amount of American domestic policy for 60 years now, and there hasn't been a whole lot of progress. And the elites are terrified there's not going to be that progress. And so they're, they're just rewriting uh, our understanding of meritocratic standards as fast as, the, as we can to say that, no, these are not neutral, objective uh, legitimate expectations of accomplishment and achievement. They are simply racist uh, ways of exclusion for the marginalized, so-called marginalized communities, to quote their, their language. Um, Amy Wax has an analogy that is pretty comprehensive, I think, that if somebody has been injured very seriously in a car accident, we can admit that the driver was at fault, but that person who's been injured at some point is not going to be able to return to functioning, you know, a body without putting in physical therapy and effort. There's nothing the the tort feeser can do at some point. the The effort has to come from within. As even if you want to say in in the case of of America that well, this is all due to white guilt, uh, which I would disagree at this point. I think that that explanation has outlived its usefulness. But the change and the improvement has to come from within. There's, there's simply nothing more, I don't think, that we can do now. Conservatives have their favorite solutions like school vouchers and charter schools and school choice. And those are good up to a point. But you really need the home culture uh, to change. 
But that is something, again, that you may not talk about. Yeah. And um, I think that the idea that it's down to white guilt or that white guilt is the key problem and that that's the thing we need to resolve, I find that a really questionable idea because it, it centers the white elite as the uh, the people who can who can magically change everything, and 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 the onus then becomes on uh, influential rich white people self-flagellating essentially in public as a way of improving society. Whereas what we should expect of all communities in our society is that they seek self-improvement through changing their culture, changing their habits, changing how they think about the world, which every community is capable of doing. Um, Okay, I want to ask you about the impact that this racial cultural revolution has had on some of the most important gains and ideas of of Western civilization, because you divide the book up into different sections looking at the impact that it's had on um, science and medicine, culture and the arts, and uh, law and order as well. Um, I want to start off with um, science and medicine. So you talk about how one of the first bodies to roll over in response to the 2020 hysteria were scientific institutions and medical institutions in particular, who started to, I guess, accelerate ideas that had been growing anyway, that um, everything to do with bad health is a consequence of systemic racism. Uh, Medical institutions and scientific bodies are riddled with white supremacy, and therefore they all thought they had to take certain measures to change and to improve. There's a really good part in the book where you talk about um, this idea of inclusive excellence, which is the notion that the way in which someone who is black and female, for example, the way in which that person understands science or analyzes scientific problems is different to how a white man might understand scientific problems. And you talk about how that undercuts the universal language of science. So could you just say a little bit about how the racial hysteria and I guess the hysteria of anti-whiteness in particular, white self-flagellation, the way it impacts on the ideals of the scientific revolution itself. Yeah. Well, Brendan, it's not just the ideals. It impacts on the realities. Like you cannot be certain any longer. If if, if you have doctors coming through the door at the emergency room of certain races or ethnicities, the privileged victim groups, if you're rational, unfortunately, you will have no confidence in their competence. Uh, we are going to slow down our medical progress uh, by these racial preferences and tearing down standards, medical standards of admissions to schools. Any tests that have a disparate impact on black medical students is now being dismantled, coming under question uh, in order to try and engineer in the face of large academic skills gaps in the way to engineer racial proportionality in hospital uh, treating staff. In, in medical school faculties, student medical student bodies, it is unbelievable the risks that we are taking with both individuals' health and the future course of medical progress. But as you say, it is an even more philosophical problem. Science is about the scientific method. It is not about the scientist. It's not about whether the scientist that is trying to understand you know, the space-time continuum or dark matter is a male, female, black, white, trans. None of that matters. Science is a universal language. This was the breakthrough of the enlightenment, of believing that there were certain principles of truth, of mathematics that transcended tribes, that transcended 
nationalities, uh, local cultures. A Nigerian female engineer can speak to a Chinese male engineer in the language of, of math and physics, even if they share no natural language in common. Uh, and yet now we're claiming that there is a white way of doing science and a black way of doing science. This is completely a phony, imaginary, false idea. It is simply a way to reverse engineer racial proportionality in our science bodies. And the most astonishing thing, and this is something that I track in the arts as well, is the gatekeepers of science or the guardians of science, whether it's the heads of medical schools or the heads of some of our most important medical journals, whether it's the Lancet in, in the UK or the Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA in, in the US, they are going out and declaring that science is racist and medicine is racist. These are ignoramuses. If you want to talk about a project that has reduced inequities, it is the poor who have disproportionately benefited from scientific breakthroughs of both in public health and in, in more you know, pure medicine, whether it's pasteurization or, or plumbing or understanding disease vectors, malaria eradication, river blindness, uh, you know, polio eradication. It is the poor whose standards of living were most exponentially increased compared to the, the well-to-do. And yet these people, somebody's put them in positions of power, are willing to turn on their own institutions rather than confront honestly uh, the reasons for racial disparities, or preferably just saying that is not our domain. It is not the domain of science to figure out why there are academic skills gaps that begin at say age five. Uh, we have now in our science academic departments in the United States, you very often, like I would say probably at least 50% of all science departments, whether it's engineering or physics or chemistry, biology, math, to be even considered to be hired as a chemical engineer, you have to write a statement about how enthusiastic you are about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how your work in you know, cell signaling and nematodes bears upon diversity. And if you have not written a sufficiently enthusiastic DEI statement, you won't even be considered. Your application will be tossed in the, in the garbage. Uh, we are now putting a, a scientist's ability to mouth diversity bromides ahead of our interest in whether he is going to provide us with the final or you know, initial breakthrough in understanding and curing Alzheimer's disease. 
If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Yeah, that, that's very well put. And it strikes me that this notion that there is a, a, a white way of doing science and a black way of doing science or indigenous ways of knowing, which is something that we've heard about here in the UK in some of the um, campaigns to decolonize the science curriculum on, on university campuses. It just strikes me as entirely counter-enlightenment, entirely counter-science and, and counter the universalism that is necessary to the understanding that science can bring. Um, and that part of your book is very important on that. For me, the most riveting part of the book is the stuff on culture and the, the cultural suicide that has been brought about under the banner of um, curing society of its whiteness problem and, and um, addressing so-called systemic racism. It's some really disturbing material that you have in there in terms of what's being done. Uh, early in the book, as, as I said, you, you refer to it as civilizational self-cancellation. And there's this great line at the very beginning of the book, where you say the greatest sin of the diversity crusaders is to teach students to revile some of the most sublime creations of the human spirit. And that really does sum up what's been done to art and culture in the name of so-called racial equality or racial equity. I wanted to ask you about a couple of those examples. So the first one is um, the crusade against classical music. This is something you've been writing about for a while now. You've written many articles on it, um, and you've got a lot on it in this book as well. There are so many weird things happening. You've got the New York Times music critics suggesting that um, orchestras should get rid of blind auditions in order that they can see if the person is white or black and therefore be more likely to hire the black musician rather than the white one. So color blindness now goes straight out the window in preference for racial judgment. Uh, you talk about how at Juilliard, one of the most famous music schools in the world, uh, there are now real strong movements to address so-called racial disparities at the cost of the education that that school gives to its students. And then you talk about the movement to make Beethoven more woke, uh, which is a very funny and disturbing chapter on the efforts of the new diversity crusaders to uh, make uh, Beethoven less of a problematic white man. Could you just tell us why you think classical music in particular has been so willing to go along with this stuff? Why do you think it's become such a focal point for the, the modern uh, cultural revolution? Wow. The why is a question beyond the fact that it is just yet another uh, Western institution that is one of our most precious gifts to the world. And anybody in an elite position today is uh, eager to jump on the anti-racism bandwagon and to gain whatever cultural 
prestige that that somersault uh, confers. To me, it is a constant puzzle and a constant source of both sorrow and rage that people who are enjoying the sublime privilege of curating this music are now willing to turn upon it. And the classical music press is among the worst. I, I quote some of your BBC critics there who have these just incredibly juvenile sneerings at, at Beethoven. Well, you know, we might have thought that greatness was was uh, defined by 32 piano sonatas and, and you know, big hair uh, and cantankerousness uh, and, and claiming that the association of whiteness and maleness with the canon is not accidental. These are writers from the BBC. This is just sheer ignorance. The fact of the matter is, is that, of course, the Western classical music tradition is white. It was European. It was not white because of exclusion and racism on the part of the composers or the consumers, the commissioners of music. Europe was white. There were very few blacks in Europe until really the 19th century, if that. We do not use the same standards of assuming that absent some kind of global diversity uh, measures, other traditions are racist. So nobody blames Nigerian drum language for being black. The fact that the people who perform the talking drum in Nigeria are all black. We don't say, oh, gee, you're anti-Chinese because there's no Chinese there. Or we don't say to Chinese classical opera, you're anti-black because your performers have always been Chinese. Or we don't say to the Balinese participants in the monkey chant, oh, you're anti-white because the people doing the monkey chant are all Balinese. Only does the West, the West is the only tradition that is turning on itself for its inevitable, and now you can't go back and change the past for its demographic profile. Uh, and, and so whether it's classical music or art in museums or literature, for a long time now, academics have, have told students that to have this incredibly idiotic, narrow, solipsistic view that you should only read things that in which you see yourself mirrored. You know, so as a female, I was allegedly, apparently, and I didn't know it at the time, and that must explain a lot of my anguish. Now, I didn't know it at the time that as a freshman in college, when I read Chaucer and Spencer and Milton and Wordsworth and Pope and, and Keats and Shelley, that I was being oppressed because I was reading males instead of females. It never occurred to me. And it should not occur to anybody that when they are listening to Bach and Chopin and Brahms and Schubert song cycles, that they are somehow oppressed because those composers are white and male. This was a tradition that was founded by people of extraordinary sensitivity to human pathos, eros, erotic desire, tragedy, irony, wit. It has nothing to do with race. 
Beethoven symphonies have nothing to do with race. Sorry, guys, it's not all about you. And yet, uh, we have these movements now, as you say, Brandon, we should get rid of blind auditions because you know this is this is where the anti-racism movement has come to now. In the absence of being able to find anything remotely plausible, like intentional discrimination, we have now decided that automatic, blind, objective tests are themselves racist. So if you are auditioning somebody and you can't see somebody's race, that's racist. <laughs> or a red light camera, it doesn't see what the driver's race is, but if it stops more black drivers, that camera is somehow racist. And that's what's going on now with every meritocratic standard uh, is coming down and the traditions themselves are being besmirched and we are teaching young people to hate. Yeah. And I think the um, the civilizational self-cancellation that you write about is really clear, particularly clear on university campuses as well. In you know, there are, we had this controversy at Yale University recently where there was a campaign to stop first year English students from having to read Chaucer, Shakespeare and Milton because, you know, why should we only read white men? And we've seen a similar dynamic in um, universities here in the UK. There was one university where the, the decolonized movement openly called for the liberation of courses from white knowledge. It really is extraordinary. I mean, to describe those writers as white anyway is completely ridiculous and completely undermines what they are and what they did. Um it was really striking that Edinburgh University here, there was a decolonized movement and, and they argued for the erasure of some white authors and their replacement by someone like W.E.B. Du Bois. Now, I'm all in favor of people reading W.E.B. Du Bois. What was striking is that in his book, uh, The Souls of Black Folk, he very famously argued for allowing black people into the kingdom of culture, as he called it. He's got that great line, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. And uh, yet you have um, modern day crusaders saying, well, Shakespeare's not really right for young black people because they won't be able to relate to it, which again strikes me as a fairly racist notion. I did want to just ask you one more question about Beethoven because that is really interesting. Um, the crusade against him in particular, you've written before about how some people now refer to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony as an as a white work, you know, a work of whiteness that needs to be cleansed in some way. In your book, you talk about the um, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Which they put on a production of uh, Beethoven's Fidelio, and they basically turned it into a Black Lives Matter production. This opera became basically a statement on the problematic incarceration of black people rather than what it is, which is a tribute to enlightenment and a tribute to marital love. Um, what is it about Beethoven, do you think, that really gets them? Because it does seem to me that they seem particularly keen to take down this one person. Is it because he is so symbolic of Western civilization in terms of his achievements? Because it does seem extraordinary that, as you outline in your chapter, Making Beethoven Woke, there is this effort to, to take him down in some ways. Yeah, I think you've put your finger on it. Um, if If there's one composer that people who are otherwise ignorant of, of classical music may know, it's Beethoven, although even that, that's not clear. Several years ago, the Los Angeles Philharmonic was trying to get into the HD uh, business following the Metropolitan Opera. This is, you know, the live broadcasts in movie theaters. And um, I wanted to go see how this was going to turn out in a local movie theater in Southern California, in Irvine, California. 
and I went and I was asking for uh, tickets to the LA Philharmonic. And she said, well, I don't see anything here. There's something on Bedouin. And I said, gee, I must be at the wrong place or maybe they're not uh, broadcasting as I thought until I figured out that Bedouin was, was Beethoven. Um, and, you know, she had no idea what she was reading here. But I think, yes, because he is viewed as the pinnacle of the evolution of the classical style, the, the apex in the movement between classicism and romanticism, the Ninth Symphony, the Fifth Symphony with its just absolutely iconic opening uh, rhythms and melodic uh, movement there. So if you can take down Beethoven, he's a synecdoche for the entirety of the uh, Western classical tradition. And uh, there's a, a musicologist in New York City at Hunter College, which is one of the City University of New York uh, colleges, who has also sort of made a crusade against Beethoven and to the absolute ecstasy of both the classical music press of Andrew Ross at New Yorker and of the musicologists. Uh, and he's written just these utterly ludicrous blog posts saying, well, Beethoven is an above average composer, but to say that he's one of the greats is like saying that um, you, you know every other piece of music that's ever been written in the last, in the 200 years before him. No, it doesn't require knowing that. You can make judgments of, of relative greatness without knowing uh, every other music. And he says Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is no greater than this jazz work by a jazz composer named Esmeralda Spalding, which is written, 12 Little Spells, which is written uh, on so-called poems that she's written about various organs of the body. That is a far cry from Friedrich Schiller's On die Freude, Ode to Joy, the poem that Beethoven said in the fourth movement of the Ninth Symphony. So this guy, Philip Ewell, he's received with standing ovations wherever he speaks to musicologists. It is an absolutely perverse moment that we're living through. There is no culture like the West and there's no people like white people that are involved in this self-cancellation. I will be ready to start hanging plaques on Dutch Baroque still life masterpieces saying that, well, what these are all really all about is anti-colonialism and slavery, as has happened now at the, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, at the National Gallery in, in Washington, Metropolitan Museum at the Rice Museum, that Tate Modern had a whole uh, show anti-Hogarth recently about his whiteness. And my God, he had white porcelain in his painting. So that just shows white fragility. I'll start on a crusade against Western art when I see African museums having plaques about their involvement in the transatlantic slave trade or their slaving that way preceded the arrival of Europeans. When I see plaques about tribal war, about tribal genocide, about child mutilation, according to the BBC, there is still child sacrifices by, by witch doctors going on there. When I see China uh, apologizing for its brutal uh, treatment of, of peasants 
none of this is happening any place in the world but the U.S. and the the rest of the West, particularly the Anglosphere. Uh, and it has got to stop because this civilization has given the entirety of the world freedom from famine, from poverty, from disease. Have we cleared it out completely? No. But the ideas that the left is agitating with are exclusively Western ideas. They use Western institutions. We have got to stop apologizing for Western civilization. That's very well said, Heather. I've just got one more question for you. I hope it's not too much of a depressing question to end with. Um, But the other part of your book um, is how this new cultural revolution doesn't only lead to civilizational self-cancellation, to the destruction of art, to the encouragement of ignorance, um, the infusion of science, the universal language of science with the divisive ideas of, of racial difference, uh, but it also has an impact on the streets. It has an impact on people's lives. And you have a section on law and order. There's a really extraordinary section where you talk about the post-2020 crime wave in New York City in particular, and the extraordinary one-year spike that was witnessed in, in New York. Um, I wanted to ask you just to end about how much of an impact do you think this elite crusade against the masses, which is essentially what we're seeing here, how much it's leading to actual social disarray or exacerbating social breakdown and uh, criminal behavior too. If you look at the defund the police idea, for example, and the impact that that had in certain areas where police forces might have been removed from public duty or or stood back in certain situations. Um, We look at the situation in in Manhattan where you have a DA who is hell-bent on getting Trump into jail for um, giving money to Stormy Daniels, but then turns a blind eye to certain crimes that are seen as low-level, in quote marks. Um, This is a destructive force, isn't it? And what do you think is required to push back against that to maintain some element of social peace and and social solidarity? Well, you're actually understating the degree of the post-George Floyd crime explosion in the United States. It's just been horrific. Uh, 2020 was the largest increase in homicide in this nation's history. 29% increase in homicides in one year. Any 29% change in any field is just a massive statistical change. Uh, And city after city set new records for homicide. And what's the most amazing thing about this is as usual, uh, the primary victims of increased crime are blacks, not because police are killing them, not because whites are killing them. Again, as I said, it's because blacks are killing each other. Uh, When the police back off, what happened was after the George Floyd death, all of Western civilization was identified as culpable and complicit, but it was law enforcement above all else which was seen to be the site of systemic racism par excellence. President Biden constantly hammered home the completely false idea that black parents are right to fear that every time their children step out into the street, they'll be killed by a cop. That is utterly preposterous. Yes, black children are being mowed down at just heartbreaking rates by black gangbangers mowing children down in their front yards, backyards, bedrooms, 
at birthday parties, jumping on trampolines in their parents' cars, if white kids were mowed down at one-tenth the rate at which blacks are killed, there would be a revolution. Dozens of blacks are killed every day in homicide. Dozens every day. That's more than all white and Hispanic homicide victims combined, even though, again, blacks are 13% of the population. So the rate at which blacks die of gun homicide went up after George Floyd because cops under this completely comprehensive encyclopedic narrative about police racism have backed off of policing. They are not engaged in discretionary stops. The recruiting is at an absolute crisis level. You cannot recruit anymore in the United States. Big city departments cannot find people. The flight from the profession, the resignations are enormously high. So departments are scrapped for officers. If an officer has an option of getting out, making a discretionary stop and possibly facing uh, a resisting violent suspect, he has to ask himself, are there enough cops on the beat right now that I will be able to get back up if this guy starts fighting with me and grabs my gun? That affects officer decision-making as well. So what's it going to take to turn it around? I do not know, Brendan, because we had our 2022 elections. Crime was an issue. The only people talking about the post-George Floyd crime spike were white conservatives on Fox News and, and people like myself. And we're all like scratching our heads and saying, well, wait, 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 I, I thought Black Lives Mattered. And here you have another 2,000 Blacks killed in homicide and nobody but white conservatives are talking about it. Mm-hmm. And it's the most curious thing. And it didn't make a difference in the 2022 elections. You know, you had a lot of these left-wing prosecutors that were returned to office or the, the Democrats who were promoting this narrative will return to office. We just had an election in Chicago with the left-wing cop basher was voted in. It was the, and we all, you know, conservatives like to have a safe harbor and say, oh, well, it's just the white elites that are anti-cop. I'm sorry, that's not quite true. As much as I have made a, a concerted effort to, to honestly report on the, the true support for police in black neighborhoods, It is also the truth that there are many people in those neighborhoods that would rather feel like they can get their power from a victim narrative and bash the cops than than look to their own neighborhood safety. In Chicago, the highest crime neighborhoods in the South Side and West Side were the neighborhoods that voted the most for the cop basher, Brendan Johnson. And so this is a, a... a paradox and a mystery that I've been thinking about recently, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that if you're a civil rights activist, that you would side with black criminals over black victims. You could just imagine if you're a civil rights activist, you say, you know what? It's a civil rights problem that black juveniles die of gun homicide at a hundred times the rate of white juveniles. I'm going to like try and save those juveniles. The best way to do that at this point, the only thing that we know how to do that works is sound, constitutional, colorblind, proactive policing. But instead, the activists have taken the side of black criminals and they are systemically, rigorously, 
daily unwinding all criminal law enforcement for the usual reasons as we're unwinding objective academic tests of merit because criminal law enforcement inevitably has a disparate impact on blacks. And we've decided we would rather not put more black criminals in prison than have more disparate impact and have disparate representation in prison because blacks are committing higher crime. The optimists that I talk to occasionally think that, oh no, 2024, crime is really going to be an issue. It's going to turn things around. No, it's not. It won't. If white conservatives stop talking about crime and black victims, there's going to be nobody talking about crime in the United States. Because if you do, the left calls you a racist. If you if you talk about black lives and black victims, the left will call you a racist that you're you're putting out this racist dog whistle. So okay, we'll all just walk away and and let let these black kids be killed. Because to talk about it is allegedly racist. It is an amazing situation. It's not going to change until white kids start getting killed. The carjackings, the robberies, the the, the follow home robberies, they are spreading into the suburbs. Uh, but they're going to have to get a lot worse for this to really turn around, it seems to me. Heather, thank you very much. It's always the best interview ever, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.